guess we're in Hebrews chapter 6 again this morning we're looking normally at a single verse at a time but this morning I think because the verse is only a, a portion of the actual sentence we we're only getting a, a small bite so I, I elected to try to cover uh, the first three of those, uh, or all three of those, excuse me, four, five, and six. I want to read them again as they appear. Uh, We'll start with verse one. It says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most high heavenly God, we <clears throat> assemble this morning, Lord, uh, for obedience and for worship, Lord, for instruction, uh, to learn uh, about your word, and most importantly, how it testifies of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, the Savior of all men who are to be saved, Lord, that we know and we trust in him, that be uh, the pin- pinnacle Uh, of our gathering as we corporately assemble that it would be to glorify and exalt his name Lord, to uh, fall in submission to what he has called us to do or to acknowledge all of his greatness Lord, his humanity and his deity we just ask this morning that as we attempt to look over these passages god that we would not see them with carnal eyes Lord, with carnal hearts, but that your spirit would testify to us the spiritual, eternal truth of Christ in them. Lord, that we may not get hung upon man's responsibility or what man can or cannot do this morning, but that we would see in this text what Christ has done, Lord, and who he has done that for, Lord, how he has applied this finished work, God, that in your grace and your mercy and, Lord, in your omniscience to see that you have provided salvation for those whom you have called and drawn unto him. Lord, we thank you. We ask that you would provide for us a hedge of protection, God, that we wouldn't stray from the cross, Lord, and that as we would feed, it would be uh, not simply upon doctrine, or principles, Lord, but that would be upon our Savior, he who has entrusted to us this great and wonderful gift, this reward, Lord, this great earthly and heavenly treasure, the truth of who he is. Lord, we just pray today that you would receive our worship, Lord, and that you would be well pleased with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we look uh, 
to verses 4, 5, and 6 this week. We cannot do that without being reminded of what we've seen over the past weeks. And uh, not to beat a dead horse in the ground, but that was kind of what was ha happening uh, with the church and with these Hebrew people. Uh, we need to be reminded uh, about what is going on. It was saying, therefore, we're leaving these elementary teachings, these uh, fundamental initial doctrines, if you will, about the Christ. Now, this is not about uh, simply a man called Jesus, but this is the man called Jesus who is also the Christ. And it says, once we have established these truths, and it lays them out for us, it, it talks about uh, the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And then it says instructions about washing and laying on of hands and resurrection and eternal judgment. After we have established for us those things, let us decide together. Let us be uh, complete as of one mind to say that this is what we together agree. This is what is foundational basis for what we believe. And let us move on because there's much more to be said about the Christ. There's much more, and John says, and as John the Apostle, in his epistle, he says that Jesus had done many things, that the books of the world could not contain them, and if that indeed is the case, then why would we get hung up on four or five things? Why would we do that? If you're going to school for any number of reasons, or you're getting an education, and you want to learn about Whatever it is you want to learn, you don't learn the first four and five things and just stop. You don't take one class and quit. And unfortunately, that is not the way that uh, most assuredly the U.S. church, Christian professing church, sees their relationship with Christ. In fact, they may have no relationship at all calling themselves the church without actually being so. Indeed, we see that there are many people who are uh, so completely satisfied with just coming once and just hearing once and never again to learn another thing about this man whom we call Jesus, this Jesus who is the Christ, uh, that we see the passage is very relevant, not only for the Hebrew people, but this is relevant for uh, for people who have profess the name of God, profess to know the Christ, and have yet to move on towards maturity. This is an issue that must have existed within the New Testament church as it was established in the very beginning, and it most certainly will continue to exist. Now, the purpose for us to read this today is not that somehow we can be a better church, although I believe that will be the outcome if we are given in obedience to Christ, but that we would look away from the the humanity of Christ and the name simply of Christ and to examine what all that means. To see Christ not simply as Savior, though I don't say that He is simply Savior, but to see Christ as Savior who is grace, who is mercy, who is God, who is love, who is all of these things, who is judge, who is partner, the Christ who fulfills every Old and New Testament prophecy, the Christ who has fulfilled every law, and that is what was left 
on the table when we consider these Hebrew people. They were satisfied with just knowing the name because they didn't properly understand what it meant to call upon the name of Christ. And seeing these things, it says that we will do this, we will move on, we will leave these teachings, we saw last week, if God permits. And my intent last week, and maybe I did a terrible job, maybe I didn't, was for us to see that what we will do absolutely hinges and relies and is founded upon what God permits. If we do not establish the basic principles of Christianity and following Christ as this, as believing that, of course, all of the elementary teachings are true, but also understanding that God is sovereign and, and is in control, then we will miss out on all the majority of what the text has to say. Why? Because as we read this morning, we'll see that there will be some enlightenment that comes to those who do not have salvation. Some of these truths are partially understandable to those who are not regenerate. Some of these truths make good principles. Without understanding them in the sovereignty and in the light of the sovereignty of God and in the perfection and fulfillment of Christ, what we have is a partial understanding, one that is unable to save, one that is unable to move us to maturity, one that is unable to bring us from death to life or to bring us through sanctification. As with every Sunday morning, it happens that Pat says something that's very relevant to the text that we read. This morning, Pat asked three questions right off the bat. I assume they were largely rhetorical because he didn't wait on answers. He said, are we sanctified? Are we being sanctified? And is that confusing? The answer should be for the Christian, yes, to all three. It seems okay and we're very easy, quickly to respond to the first two. Are we sanctified? Are we being sanctified? But the last one must come with some humility. Is it confusing? And I think we ought to be honest enough to say that there is some level of confusion. Why? Because we haven't reached the ultimate stage of Christian maturity. It's hard for us to understand what it's like to be positionally sanctified and effectually being sanctified. It's hard to try to reconcile the two because we see them as differences when in fact they are not. I believe the text this morning uh, will lean us towards some understanding of those three questions. And like I said, the point of the text as we move forward is not to simply see what man can do or what man has received or what man will receive, but what Christ has done. And it molds the way that you see the text. 
In fact, we'll see from this particular text, many of you may be familiar, that it is a large point of contention amongst believers. Some will say that this text describes a security uh, in eternal life that is not secure at all. They would use this text to say that we may lose salvation. They will use this text to form an improper view and an insufficient view of Christ because if we are to say that Christ can lose one, then he is of no effect. Then he can save none. In fact, I read a a comment from a guy in this particular passage, and he said, you know, we like to say that if we're once saved, we're always saved. And and some people like or dislike using that. it's, It's a truth. But he said, you know, for the person who does not agree with that, then they have to agree with this. Once lost, always lost. Because they can't find their way back if Christ is not the anchor that holds them through salvation. If Christ is not that eternal Savior. It doesn't say he's a sometime Savior or a one-time Savior, but he's an eternal Savior. That is the proper view that we must hold as we move forward in the text. And as we begin to look at chapter 6, verse 4, it says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. A lot being said in those few verses. I want you to see that in verse 4, there begins a very strong contrast. Very strong contrast. The contrast is between two parties. The two parties are only revealed ultimately as the reader arrives to verse 6. It says, and then fallen away. So we know that one party are those who have fallen away. One party is those who have not. The initial appeal of this portion of the passage is toward those believers who suffer from the things outlined at the closing of chapter 5. These, uh, this appeal is to those who are suffering from what we see in verses 11 through 14. Concerning him, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained and discern good and evil. There is the camp of those who have fallen away and never were. And there's the camp of those who are in danger, it seems, of falling away. See, one is for the regenerate, believe the other for the unregenerate. That is what the contrast is about. For in the case of those who have been enlightened, he's saying, listen, for those of you who have slacked off and have been content with the milk and who are malnourished, as it may seem, We will leave these principles, we will leave these elementary teachings, and we will move on, if God permits, 
And in the case of you who do not fall in this category, here is what I have to say. He says, for those who suffer these spiritual lackings, deficiencies, if you will, this is what God would say. This is what he has declared. The alternate group is detailed there in verse 6. Professors of Christ who have fallen away. Professors of Christ who have fallen away. We must come to understand the distinct characteristics of these two groups as we come to graze in this portion of chapter 6. Now, when we deal with those, and it's a tough thing, who have seemingly fallen away, it seems that oftentimes the professing church only deals with this in two ways. We like to be quick to judge and say that this person has fallen away, but even quicker, and I believe it's because there is some level of condemnation of guilt, seeing someone who is openly uh, professing Christ yet failing to live in any way like a Christian, and being convicted of those same things. Many professing Christians would say, oh, no, he's saved. Oh, no, he belongs to Christ. Oh, no, don't say that about him. He hasn't fallen away. He's just backsliding for a time. I think the issue comes because we don't want to deal with our own sinfulness because it's a tough thing to admit and because in some ways we face the same hypocrisies as one who has fallen away. Now, the reality is that the church will contain at times within it both parties. Some sneak in unawares, some purposefully, some self-deceivingly. I believe we have to understand the characteristics of these two groups, that there are people who are quite all right with professing Christ but have no desire to be obedient to Christ, have no desire to be in a marriage-type relationship with Christ. We have to see those two groups. We have to be uh, real with ourselves. It's extremely imperative that we establish this in our minds, uh, that the audience for which this was initially intended, the Hebrew people who were receiving this message, it was extremely relevant with them because they dealt with this, and I would say we must see again that it is extremely relevant uh, and applicable to today. Why is it because we simply want to throw some out of the church or to remove some? And I would say no. That is not the intent. The intent is that Christ would be exalted and that God is glorified. What? Well, what would be the reason for us to look at these things so that we may be aware and so that we would make others aware so that we would hold each other accountable so that we would test ourselves and know and be assured that we belong to Christ and that our neighbor is nothing good comes out 
of seeing this passage as uh, relaying a false point that would say that we could lose salvation. Why? Because it distracts from the power of Christ. It makes little the effectiveness of the gospel. And then it tells us that some are beyond its reach. Isn't that what the passage would say if we saw it that way? That simply some are out of reach of the gospel. They've caused themselves to be so far from God that they can't be saved. That's what we say if we say that this passage says that we can lose our salvation. Or that we can fall away after being saved. See the problem with that? It's not the Christ of Scripture. It's not a Christ who is God. That would be a Christ of our own imagination. That would be a Christ who somehow is unable to save and a Christ who is weak and a, a Christ evidently without a will to save sinful man. That is not at all what the passage is talking about. Of course, it also means that we have to acknowledge the text and the context of it. Again, as we said in the past weeks, that this is addressed to a religious people, a particular people who are very familiar with the outward workings of religion, but with the inward conformity, they have failed uh, greatly, in fact. These are the people of Judaism. These are people who had ties, if you will, to a system of works-based righteousness and strict views concerning law-keeping and absolutely zero grasp of grace. That is the issue with the passage. If we see the passage apart from the grace of God in Christ, then we see the passage with blind eyes. Then we see the passage in an unregenerate state. Then we see the passage as, as a natural man would see the passage. Last week with verse 3 says, And this we will do if God permits. We, the church, those who are truly belonging to this Jesus who is Savior, we will do something. Not we can choose to do something or we may do something, but the matter here is not simply of man's responsibility as if his will is left up to his own, as if we have a, a skewed view of what others like to call free will, to choose to serve or not to serve. It says we will and we must if God permits not left up to question it's a it's a circumstance and an event that will most certainly take place if you fall into the category of those who belong to christ and have seen these elementary teachings and have been changed by them and are trusting in christ and and not to spoil the end of the sermon but this is the reality the problem with these people here in chapter six 
And maybe with you today and maybe with uh, professing Christians sitting in pews everywhere was not was Christ able to save and save forever. The question was, do we really trust in Christ? That's what it boils down to. In fact, it was also uh, very meaningful and I believe very significant. If you would understand the passage as we get there today that we would read in Matthew chapter 26 what we did this morning. Because interestingly enough, I believe that's one of the best places to start and end this sermon. To see what Peter could or could not do. Why? Because it relays the point that the penman is trying to bring in Hebrews as we read these first eight or nine verses here. portion of the text that we deal with is progressing from the infancy of chapter 5 to the maturity beginning in chapter 6 that we must attain to, and then somewhere in the middle and at the end it is saying, but you can't do it. It must be Christ. In fact, we saw the disciples ask Christ the very same question. You know, if, if this be true, then how can man be saved? And his response is simply, with man it's impossible. That is what Hebrews chapter 6 is saying. This is the danger of not progressing. This is what must happen, and you can't do it. You know why? Because we want to be sure that the Jesus we are following is the Jesus who is sovereign and in control. If he's not, he's another Jesus. He's a false Jesus. If he's not sovereign and in control, and if the work is not being done in man's heart and in man's mind, and of course uh, expressing itself in man's actions, then this is not a work of the Christ. What will these people do? The text says move on, progress, continue persevere, press on towards the mark. We'll be sanctified all by moving on and from and building upon this already laid foundation. It's already laid. Guess what? You didn't lay it. If you didn't lay it, what makes you think that you're the builder of upon it? Now what we have in verses 4 through 6 are people who are exposed to the elements that make up the foundation. It says there again, as we read, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, they're exposed to the material makeup of this foundation. Notice that, that the writer does not even, and I don't know why the, the professing Christian church and some form of pastors and elders and teachers want to say, accuse this of being salvation, but it doesn't say that. It says enlightenment enlightenment can you be enlightened on certain aspects of things and not fully understand them absolutely can you not be enlightened to the point that maybe you can put an engine back together but you don't understand how it works certainly can you be enlightened to understand what is in something but not how they come together and how they work and how they're effectual absolutely the text here 
talking about people exposed to the elements that make up a foundation. And what we will see is that while the materials are there, the spiritual building blocks are present and they're laid out for us there. Foundation of repentance, dead works, and a faith towards God, washing, laying on of hands, resurrection, eternal judgment. As the material and the foundation building blocks are there, the labor, and more importantly, the trust, is not there. You're not laboring with these materials to press on towards maturity, and they're not trusting in the material, nor are they trusting in the builder. Here are, uh, if you will, spiritually dead employees who have everything they need to do the job, but they cannot. They don't really understand how they work, and they're not willing to listen to the foreman. That is, in a temporal sense, a spiritual matter that is occurring that is even larger, more important, more intricate than any illustration that I could provide for you. This is, in fact, the fundamental that we must understand. If we have everything to build a house, but we do not have the faith to believe and trust in its foundation and the material thereof, we will never build. That's just the reality. And even if we did decide to build and we didn't have faith and we didn't believe and we didn't trust in the material that makes up the house, we would be so doubtful that we would never rest in it, much less would we live in it founded upon the foundation. And this is what, spiritually speaking, is happening in chapter 6. They have the materials. The materials are put together. The foundation is laid as it is presented to us in the Scriptures. But yet these people aren't trusting to build upon it. They're not trusting to live in it. What is the problem? Well, we could say that the problem is man, but that's the problem we've had from the beginning. The real problem is there's a lack of understanding of who Jesus is. There's a lack of understanding of what Jesus has done, and that is what Penman was dealing with. In fact, many people believe because the previous context of chapter 5 is that of the priesthood, that this may have in some way been uh, directed only at the priest, and I would say that it, it must be for all of God's people. But it makes a lot of sense if we understand it that, that the priest would take this and be convicted by it because they were those who were supposed to be teaching about Christ and the grace of Christ and that the sacrifice was finished and that somehow this was the foundation that they would continue to build on and that they're called to build on. And they thought, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to preach that. But eh, we want to come back over here and make a sacrifice just in case. See the problem with that? There's no trusting in Christ. We have to live founded upon these principles and we have to be content with what God is building. This illustration, what we should be getting from the passage, though in a spiritual sense it's deeper, it's stronger, it's higher. You see, as we look at the verses before us, we know 
which is not about man, but it's about Jesus Christ. The things that come to light in verse 4 begin with those words, for in the case. This means simply that in contrast to those who will leave the elementary teachings for maturity, there are some who will not. In the need for God's permission, there will be no granting of such for some people. For in the case of those who don't fall into that category, here's what will happen. Or here's what will not happen. Church, there's not simply posed here a possibility for some to remain unchanged and unsaved, but presented before us are the facts that some will see neither. Some will see nothing. These types will exist. Not can exist, but will exist. Always have and always will. The question today will be, how can we know? How can we know? And the answer is not simply to know the answer to the question about how do we know if we're saved. Because that's not really what the passage is dealing with. The question is do we know the Savior? Because if we do know the Savior, we don't have to understand everything about salvation. If we trust the Savior, we don't have to know how these things came together. If we trust Him, that's good enough, right? Like the child who doesn't know how to walk or ride a bike and his father is there and he doesn't know how the bike stays up and he doesn't know how to walk properly without falling down but the father tells him to go ahead and, and make the effort and do what is necessary and to move the feet and he's faithful to make sure that he does not stumble and that he does not fall. The answer is if we know the Savior, if we but know him, he has answered the need for salvation. It's really mind-boggling how many people separate this text and in particular separating it from its immediate context. How many, whether knowingly or unknowingly, will seek to disengage the text from its testimony of Christ and use it instead for that polar opposite which I described to you earlier as to define sin as stronger than the blood of Christ. This can never and will never be a passage about losing salvation. What I would call eternal insecurity. In fact, doesn't that describe what we had before we came to know Christ? Eternal insecurity? We had no reason to believe that we could do anything. We were desperate. There was no answer. That was before. Now something has to be different after Christ. Most certainly this has to be a passage about eternal security. About the goodness of Christ. One of eternal security because it does not hinge upon man's ability, but on the ability of Jesus. Now, in saying that, understanding the passage, I believe, though I may could wait to the end to say this, I feel it's necessary to say it now. This is what John Gill, the predecessor to Charles Spurgeon, said about it. He said, the issue with this passage was that 
the people were seeing the evil effects of sin by being enlightened, but not seeing the evil in sin. You understand that? And the people being enlightened were seeing the goodness that comes from Christ, but not seeing the goodness in Christ. That is what the professing church was dealing with. People who are enlightened, they hear about Christ, they hear about morality, they hear about the law, and they said, you know what, that's right, this is bad. I'm going to give those things up without trusting in Christ. And so what do they do? They become a a legalistic person, a morally self-righteous person. And then dealing with the goodness of Christ, we see it all the time on TV. People say, give this money to the church or send in this seed and you will reap what God has these blessings for you. People joining a church because they know people there and they can get some discounts here or there, or they can get some help here or there, or joining the church for any other reason than Christ. They're joining because they see the goodness that comes from that fellowship, but not really the goodness in that fellowship. See, the benefits of knowing Christ, but they don't want to know Christ. See, what we're dealing with is the Jesus of 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 55. One whom is spoken of here, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is the problem. There is no victory for the one who has fallen away. How can there be? Who wins and loses? This is the Jesus whom we must know, whom we must trust in. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, literally ones who have been given light is what the text says. It's interesting that people would see this as salvation. Of course it can be, of course, but it doesn't mean that it's all salvation, all enlightenment. Of course, it, it's not. This is in no way implying that these people were given salvation and then fell away from that, that they were pardoned somehow from any sin, much less all sin, and then somehow the debt comes back. How do we know? Well, first, we must never, ever read into the text anything apart from its context. Obviously, the penman goes through a great deal to describe these two distinct groups, two opposites. Secondly, we cannot read this into the text, that this enlightenment is salvation somehow that they're falling from, because John chapter 3 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth is uh, believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. These men were seeing the light 
But they said, we want no part of it. This is the enlightenment that's being described in chapter 6. Not that they had been enlightened, that they had been given light unto salvation, but that the light was present. There it was. Behold, here is the feast. It's a man called Jesus Christ, and you are not willing to eat. There's the problem. Verse 20 goes on and says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. It doesn't say they don't see it. It's a mystery. It says there's the light. There is this enlightenment. Here it is given. But they hate it, and they neither cometh to it, lest his deeds should be reproved. They don't like it because the truth will come out. Because they'll be in hot water, so to speak. They'll be condemned. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. He wants to do what's right. He sees the light. He grasps the light. He doesn't leave the light. Very interesting that we consider the Lord would say, come as children. Have yet to meet a child that is not scared of the dark. But I've met plenty of professing Christians. Many of professing Christians. So what we understand is that there are those who are given in the text, in the original language, given light. Now what has become of that gift? That is the question that remains. Some began with the foundation and never moved on, but the epistle encourages them to do so as God permits because he will, in fact, move them through maturity. Others have not truly responded with repentant faith, thus they may believe to some extent, may understand and move on from the elementary elementary principles which all believers do have in common. There are the two groups. The things that in one sense we may take for granted, those elementary principles. So we have one that responds, one that does not respond. One who understands, one who does not understand. These are absolute givens, these elementary teachings that must be built on. They cannot be absent. But in the spiritual sense, they can be moved on from because they're things that we may be so sure of. They're guarantees in regards of to God's goodness and to God's promise in Christ that we can move on from them because we don't have to worry about them because he says, this is a fact. You are cleansed. Christ has done what he said he was going to do. He has done the will of the Father. He will redeem his own. There will be a second coming. Let's move on to those things that we now may serve rather than to worry about if they're true. Or to create factions or divisions. Now we see that these are those who are at the point where the line is drawn in the sand and they must leave the old religious system for the true religious system. Trust in Christ. 
you've heard about Christ, the gospel message, that he is able to save, that you must simply call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, and that means truly calling, and it means trusting. But you know what? You haven't come to the point where you've actually had to trust yet. The gospel is still effectual. They've been saved, some of these people, but they haven't been moved on to truly trusting in Christ. The, the, the measure of maturity for a Christian can often be seen in how much he trusts Christ. Does he trust Christ with a little? Does he trust Christ with a lot? Does he trust Christ with everything? Still, the passage says that some were once enlightened, but they never made a move. Never moved towards the light. Never made an effort to be as Christ is. They remained ignorant as to the true purpose of those Jewish laws which they held in such high regard. The light was given to them that they may cast their thoughts toward Christ and gain a new insight on spiritual matters. The light was a message given that would invoke others to trust in Christ. Message of Christian faith rather than Judaistic law-keeping. It's as if the Enlightenment was in fact a prescription to remedy a spiritual death, yet some remained prescription in hand without having it filled. That is the enlightenment that's being spoken of here. The medicine really does no good if it is simply prescribed and then the recipient doesn't. Fill it, right? In a greater, higher understanding, this is true about the professor of Christ. If he is a professor of Christ, then he must be filled with his spirit. He must be indwelt with his spirit. Simply understanding that Christ is who he says he is is not enough. Don't you know that Satan knows who Christ is? And he believes in Christ. There's no trusting in Christ. The light was there for these people to grasp. In fact, the text says it was given to them. Praise God this morning that the light remains. The text goes on to describe how that light remains. Jesus Christ is and was and is to come. Amen. This is the light. But this does not mean that all have turned to it. In fact, though the light shine, the spiritually blind may never see it. We need a miraculous divine work of God like what we see in Acts 26, the word spoken to Paul. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen 
and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. Does it seem like he's giving him a choice? Or did I read it right? And he said, to make thee. See how this passage can quickly mean so much more when we understand that God is in control. And in verse 17, he says, Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me, he says. See what he says? You can minister. You can testify of the light. You can preach about the light. You can love the light. But he says, what I am doing is opening the eyes, turning them from darkness. The light is already there. Why? Because the light is an eternal light. The light of Christ is the light that has never ceased to exist. He says, and then through faith may they receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? See this enlightenment? Enlightenment can come. You can see these things. And there will be many on that day. It says in chapter 7 that he will say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And what will they say? I know you're the Christ. I was serving you. They were in some way, shape, and form enlightened about who Christ was, but not under salvation. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is it with the light? The light can be there, but if he hasn't called you from darkness, then you will not see it. Or either you will see it and hate it. Or you'll see it and remain stagnant. You see how this passage is not about simply man's responsibility because that's response and ability. It's really about man's response in his inability. The answer that the Lord has placed upon the heart and on the mind and in the tongue response to the gospel see it's not enough that the light just simply exists but we must be called to it from sin and guess what we can't call ourselves from sin and if you think that you can fall from grace as it says or here fallen tasted of the heavenly things and somehow fallen away, and that you can call yourself back, you're more powerful than the Christ. You might as well get up and walk out. You're your own God. Text here says that he must do it. We must, like the man born blind, be touched by the master's hand. 
That is what the passage is about. Not thinking that somehow you can move on, or you can press forward, or you can become powerful and mighty and wisdom. Instead, you instead must be touched by the Master's hand, for there's none other than His will to do what will be done, to do what the Father has purposed in saving all those who are given to Him. None, none more, none less. You won't save one extra one. And you won't cause one extra one to go to hell either. Knowledge is what is meant here by enlightenment. They had the knowledge of truth. This did not in any way mean that they applied it, much less that they loved it. Christians are called to love the truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and then verse 8, we then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You see the issue here? God must send the light, Jesus Christ. God must open your eyes that you see the light. God must draw you to the light. And God must gift you a love for the truth that is light. Time and time again, Scripture is saying, you're not able, you're not able, you're not able, you're not able. It reminds me of the song we sing. He's able. The answer to all those, you're not able, is he's able. It says, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The passage is dealing with those who weren't being sanctified, those who weren't being changed, those who weren't pressing on to maturity. And here it says, He will save and He will sanctify. Pat said it this morning. Already positionally sanctified, experientially being sanctified. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they were enlightened, and then it says they had tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There's one who has tasted, and then because of what he has tasted, he has taken refuge. Do you see what the passage is also lending itself to? That some can taste and never take refuge? That some can taste and not be satisfied? Some can taste and like something else much better? Unto themselves have seen the sweetness and the wholesomeness of Christ. His true person not being hidden, but revealed. 
Christ is unlike any other man. Truth is that your spouse may see you as loving and caring and kind like Nathan's does, like mine may. The truth is that we might be somewhat quite far from that. Your employee might see you as a jerk or as an insensitive person or as a slave driver. Your boss may see you as lazy and reckless. Three people, three different perspectives of one person. But if Christ, anyone sees, anyone is seeing him, no accusation can be made of anything but perfect character. There is a difference. For those who taste, he is not different. You know, we can get a different, we can get a bad taste in our mouth about Tim. We can get a bad taste in our mouth about Charlie. But of Christ, no one has tasted and really received anything bitter. It says, taste and know that he is good. See, he's not bitter to any. The problem is that sin is much sweeter to some. The psalm declares it so, but the truth is that for some his manna is not enough. They rather have the fishes or the loaves instead of the lamb. The heavenly gift that is being spoken of here that they've received and they've been been partakers of this Holy Spirit, this heavenly gift is Christ. The fact is that some will taste and never feast. It appears here that Jesus was but a momentary appetizer for those who had once been enlightened. Jesus is an appetizer. That they would quickly revert back to that which they had formerly brought stuff that they loved as a meal, sin and death, this meal of their choosing. The old meal was not nourishing, but it was suited for their liking, according to the flesh, but only because it was a meal of their own choosing. It satisfied natural desires, carnal taste buds, if you will, rather than the spiritual. The feast for the multitudes revealed in the Gospel of John in several accounts were magnificent because they were meals of fish and bread, and that wasn't it. That's what they thought was the, the wonderful part about it. Jesus fed us fish and bread. There was only a little bit. He made a lot, and, that, and that's what we tell our kids. It was wonderful that Jesus made a lot of fish and a lot of bread out of a little. And we missed the part that Jesus was feeding people. Didn't matter what they had. Wasn't magnificent because they were fish and bread, which is what the people were after. And he even says that to them. But because these meals were prepared by Christ, I would submit that to you that on those days, if Christ would have prepared a meal of anything, even if it was dead grass to the Christian, it would have been delightful. Kind of like that ugly Christmas card you get from a third grader. There ain't nothing pretty about it. You're going to put it on the refrigerator, but you love it because of who it came from, right? That is the sentiment we must have of Christ. 
think that we can attest to this as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Anybody ever had one of those crackers and it was stale? Doesn't have much flavor to it? What is sweet about it? This do in remembrance of me. It's a reminder that Christ is feeding his people and that we cannot be fed on our own. We mustn't come for the appeal to our physical senses. It says that they had tasted, they knew it was good, they were partakers of the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? Uh, just to boil this down in a nutshell, it doesn't mean that they had received the Spirit to indwell. Let me remind you of this. Have you ever been blessed by somebody who was not a Christian? Absolutely. You ever had a raise at work? Did you think your boss was a Christian? You heard him cussing all the time? You seen these guys like to get drunk? Maybe beat his wife? Somebody ever helped you change a flat and they had the filthiest mouth in the world? You knew that they were not saved? They were blasphemers? Atheists? How does the Lord bless you that way? Well, brother, it's not without the Spirit. You see how they can be partakers of the Spirit? You think that the Lord did not send His Spirit even today and in times past to use the unregenerate blasphemers to bless those who belong to Him? How can they be partakers? Well, guess what? It happens in the church today. Have you ever heard of somebody being saved by a, a gospel message being preached and it turns out years later the pastor renounces Christ? Brother, he was a partaker of the Holy Spirit. There were blessings that came from that. It doesn't mean that the man was saved. It says they were partakers of the Spirit. The Lord works in and through whomever he pleases. At times, donkeys, right? It's a reality. It says that they were partakers and have tasted the good word of God. It's no other way than good in the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. It says they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. It cannot happen. If they would fall away, it will not happen because it denies the power of God and the will of God. For sake of time, I told you what we read this morning had everything to do, Peter, with what we see in the text. It says, when they had finished breakfast, John chapter 21, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, now we read it this morning, denied him three times. What was he able to do? Nothing but deny the Christ. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. The problem with understanding this passage in the, in the light that we could lose salvation is to say that there is no power of reconciliation or restoration. In fact, that is not at all what it says. What this is saying is that Christ alone, even with one as Peter to deny him, is the one who can save. And he didn't save Peter because Peter knew every doctrine, could quote every Bible verse. Though maybe he could. He didn't save Peter for any of those reasons. The thing that Christ was asking and the answer when he said, do you love me? Peter, do you still and will you remain trusting in me? That's what chapter 6 is dealing with. Not knowing Christ intimately and losing Christ. But had we ever really trusted at all? Had we trusted fully and completely and only in Jesus to the point in which every aspect of our life is being changed? Because if we're trusting in him, then we're trusting him when he says, this ain't good for you. When he says, this is not how you respond to your wife or this is not how you treat your husband. This is not how you behave in public, and this is not what you desire in private. Are we trusting Jesus in every aspect? That is the question. The answer is that if you do, there is salvation. If you don't, there never was. What is required? that the old man truly be dying. Now, Paul was concerned because he still smelt the old sin that encapsulated his mortal body. Probably pretty healthy. Probably pretty healthy to still be weary of that, but to trust that victory is in Jesus. That's a totally different thing. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, Lord, we just thank you for your word, Lord. We just ask that, Lord, you wouldn't allow us to pervert your word. God, that you would not allow us to make or to belittle anything that Christ has done. Lord, but that we see that his actions are final, they're authoritative, they're standing orders. God, that they are complete, they are full, they are with exact intentions, Lord, and they are effectual. Lord, when we come to read a passage of Scripture, let the focus not be on man for but a moment, Lord, that we may turn and see the light of Christ. Lord, that we understand that even as we read through chapter 6, Lord, the issue didn't have to be this man. 
because that was always the issue. But the true question being, do we walk with Christ? And we just ask that you would direct our footsteps. Lord, that you would provide us forgiveness. Lord, that you would cause us to trust. Lord, when there seems to be no hope, that Christ is our hope. Lord, he has done what he has said he would do. Lord, he has never lied, never brought shame to your name, Lord. May we follow him, Lord, into eternity. In Jesus' name we pray.